Hello and welcome to Rock Candy Podcast, your weekly sweet treat of tales and stories from the world of music. And we're your hosts, I'm Maggie. I'm Ashley. And today we are going to be bringing you um, a very exciting and engaging story about a very brave and wonderful woman in the world of pop. Throughout her time in a band back in the 80s that became quite popular and even up through today, especially throughout her her time in the 90s, where she was quite famous. What yes, is, today we are this? going to be talking about Annie Lennox. Okay. What are you doing? This is what the people want, right? <laughs> people want us to stop rambling and to stop screaming and to stop swearing. Stop so being from now on, ladies. we are going to be talking like this. Um, this is NPR News. <laughs> we are going to be the besweatered ladies of sweaty balls fame, <laughs> I guess. <laughs> yes. I'm sorry, I said balls. Why do I ruined it? Well, they're they're like they're like cookie dough balls, right? Or something. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. actually I don't know remember. what sweaty balls were. I don't I forgot. Remember. Yeah. This is this is rambling <laughs> and we do not do that here on Rock Candy Podcast. Nope. Here never on Rock again. Rock Candy Podcast, we only talk seriously. Uh, we do also drink thematic beers. And uh, today I am enjoying myself. <laughs> I'm, lovely... I'm over this NPR voice. Aww, I like <laughs> I'm my really NPR over voice. It. Nope. Like, what kind of amount of control do you have to have to be an NPR's person? I don't know. NPR's persons. I guess maybe we should take uh, cues from Terry Gross. Yeah. I don't know. Or, or uh, oh my God, This American Life, I'm Ira Glass. <laughs> this is This American Life, I'm Ira Glass. And uh, today we have three stories for you all about uh, being gay. But you have to be like, you have to halt, be halting in your vocals <laughs> today uh we have a story for you uh <laughs> and lots of uh i no. don't think he uh that much not that much but he definitely uh he halts. has a voice and it's uh it's about like gay people <laughs> like it's so stupid i hate it welcome to this american life i'm ira glass <laughs> and we have three stories for you today yeah all surrounding the theme of colonoscopies <laughs> astounding <laughs> astounding can't tell the difference can you but anyway yeah we're talking about annie lennox we are actually genuinely talking we about annie lennox are. and we're fucking lie. rock candy podcast nice. this is what you're in store for yeah so hope you like it yeah and i am drinking beer and i'm only gonna drink more and i'm only gonna get drunker cool oh, i am drinking the alcoholic beverages it's from Sloop Brewing. Again, I just realized we've been drinking a lot of Sloop lately. Sloop's been up our butts lately, so. Sloop butt. Yeah. Sloop butt I sounds mean... like you just have a real saggy ass. You know, she's got a Sloop butt, though. <laughs> Saturday Sloops, am I right? Oh, man. That ass has seen some Saturday Sloops. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yes. Drinking Pixie Dust, their New England IPA. Perfectly fine. It's a fine, nice IPA. Yeah. Sloop does not make a bad IPA. They don't. They could, you know, zhuzh it up a little. It is rainbow, after all, and called pixie dust. Well, yeah, and that's just because but... they made it a rainbow pride can, which is very nice, and pr- parts of their profits, parts of their profits, that is too many plosives. I apologize. <laughs> a portion of the profits go to... um their friends at New York City Pride. So I'm fine with supporting that. Sure. They're not a large corporation. 
making their own money on it so that they can just donate it to conservative super PACs. Are they? I don't know. That's what Walmart is. I, um, I don't think Sloop has anything to do with the super PAC. No. Or, I mean, I thought you just meant New York City Pride. Oh, no. I'm talking about Walmart. Yeah, fuck Walmart. Walmart, all those garbage corporations. But now it's time to play Six Degrees of Beer. I mean, it's only really one degree, really, because she is a huge advocate of um, the LGBTQ community. Correct. And she also has, she's famous for having a pixie haircut. Like, all the time. Did she ever have long hair? She did when she was younger. But after she, like, got famous, it's like, why bother? Yeah. She did wear a fuck ton of wigs, though. She was definitely a wig lady. Oh, I I appreciate a good wig lady. Yeah. I mean, some of them were highly questionable, but she used them for, like, costume. Right. Mostly. So basically, this is the first part of our Annie Lennox series, because turns out you can't do Annie Lennox can't in one do, episode. Can't, turns out, can't do Annie Lennox in just one episode. So this episode is solely focusing on her wigs, right? <laughs> just the wigs. All right. We I'm can very call excited. it Annie Lennox, just wigs. Just wigs. It's her Broadway show. <laughs> off, off Broadway. <laughs> off, off. Way off. <laughs> So off, it's like three hours out of the city. Yeah, it's in like... The, it's here. It's, it's a, just here in Troy. What is that store? Is it like Ricky's or something in New York City? Oh, in like yeah. the deepest corners where you can buy wigs and mm-hmm. like drag queen clothes, but also like hooker boots. Yes. It's great. I love that store. Yeah. Oh, I miss Ricky's. That's fair. I got my makeup bag there and it has my name on it and it's spelled correctly. You know what? Honestly, you can't fucking beat that. You can't. There you go. That's it. You know what else can't beat? What? Annie Lennox. <laughs> I think I say the Wiz. But yeah. She will beat you up. I believe it. I don't get that joke about the Wiz. So. Nobody beats the Wiz. What? I think that might be a local thing. You know what? Scratch this. Let's go. Oh, wait. Was that a commercial? Yeah, when nobody we were beats the Wiz. I remember that. Think, wow. That's yeah. like a deep cut. Mm, that's like a Bradley's cut right there. I don't know what Bradley's is, but what? okay. <laughs> you know what? Nope. We're going to stop. This is, I think this is the rambling that people complain about. <laughs> well, I don't care. I like our rambling. So whatever. Well, Lord, I know I'm a rambling man. <laughs> or I was born a rambling man. Yes, you were born a rambling man. Mm. Anyway, Annie Lennox. So first and foremost, cite my fucking sources. Cite your fucking sources. So I read this book called Annie Lennox, The Biography. <laughs> It's a very creative, creative title. <laughs> creative title by Brian E. Sutherland and Lucy Ellis. Ooh. No relation, as far as I know. Maybe. Maybe there is. And then also, like, you could be like, yo, you know Annie? Hook me up, Bo. <laughs> no, like, so I was reading, I was trying to find a book to read. So I was reading the reviews of biographies. Mm. And there was, like, a common complaint in the reviews for this book. In that they don't talk to Annie, like, specifically. They don't interview her for this book. Mm -hmm. They gather information from, like, other sources Mm. and other books, other articles and interviews and stuff. And it's like, how how is that a complaint? Like, that's every biography that has ever been written. Honestly, it is rare to get the person the biography is being written about to sign off on it. Because that would call it an authorized biography. Yeah. Also, or, you know, authorized biography or an autobiography. Like, yeah. wh- 
At that point, you're doing an autobiography. Literally every biography is sourced from other places. Yeah. I I, I was... Anyway. Yes. I was annoyed by that. But it's an okay book. It's fine. It's good so far. But yeah, let's get into it. All right. To say Annie Lennox is a powerhouse musician is a gross understatement. For the better part of 45 years, she has been gracing audiences with her intense and steely glare, mischievous smile, and astounding vocals. Fuck. 45 years? Yeah. Why don't we celebrate her more? I don't know. Well. This is why we're doing these episodes. Oh. <laughs> she's well known for her gender bending personas, an image that she's dogged and embraced alternately for decades. But don't think that dressing up is all she's capable of. She has written some of the most iconic songs of the 80s and 90s, exemplary songs that define UK electropop. Putting aside the musical genius for a, se- for a second, we also see an incredibly generous woman who tirelessly campaigns for HIV AIDS awareness and women's empowerment. She's become a feminist icon and a deity in the gay community, as if her musical legend didn't already make her timeless. But before all that happened, a little girl was born on the west coast of Scotland. Oh. Anne Lennox, no middle name, was born on December 25th, 1954, to Thomas Allison Lennox and Dorothy Farquharson Ferguson of Aberdeen, Scotland. Well, all right. First of all, did not know she was Scottish. Yeah. Thought she was did. British. Not at all. She is Scottish. All right. Already also, more bonus points. Also born on Christmas Day, two days after moi. Shitty birthday, though. Shitty birthday, yes. <laughs> um, but, but Capricorn also, is fuck. But also, I relate to her on an emotional level that is astounding to Aww. me. Like, reading, like, who she was, her personality, and the kind of person she was, I'm like, girl gets me, because I am girl. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I love it. I am girl. <laughs> Having been born on Christmas Day, Annie was clearly a very special child. Showing trademark signs of that Sagittarius Capricorn cusp, she was an exceptionally precocious child, self-assured, serious, disciplined, and determined, even at a young age. And Tom had a very similar personality, though some would say he was much quieter and much colder. Interesting. Them Scottish peoples. Them Scottish peoples, I guess. Interestingly, he was a far-left communist and an active member of the Communist Party in Aberdeen. Okay. Because of his domineering personality and his communist leanings, he tended to be quite strict with Anne. Huh. That doesn't mean she and her family weren't close. In fact, the little family was quite tight-knit. They kept to themselves, but growing up, Anne could certainly lean on her parents for incredible amounts of support. And she looked up to her mother in particular as a pillar of grace and benevolence. Are you saying that three artists in a row, we have good parents? Yeah. Holy shit. Like, this is a streak. Yeah. She like really loved her parents and really leaned on them for support like throughout her life. Aww. When she got rough, she like called her mom. Oh. Yeah. What's it like to have that relationship with your mother? <laughs> From a young age, Anne was thoroughly consumed by music. Her father played bagpipes, and both he and Dorothy loved music. So when Anne took a shine to it, they enthusiastically encouraged her. Good. She would sing along to Gaelic folk songs and bang away on her toy piano, eventually playing television jingles by ear. Oh, shit. That's awesome. Can you imagine, like, just being her parents and, like, walking around, like, 
who left the TV on? Yeah. I'm sorry, I don't know what accent that is. <laughs> and they're like, oh, look, it's my daughter Annie. <laughs> Hello. That's British. I'm so it's, sorry. I cannot do a Scottish is, accent. I'm not even going to try to do it. Quite a the artful dodger. <laughs> the artful dodger is clearly her parents. <laughs> But can you imagine like just having a toy piano when you were young and all of a sudden being like, when pizza's on a bagel, you, you can, can eat pizza, pizza anytime. And your mom's like, holy fuck, Maggie, how'd you do that? You can play the bagel bites song. I, mean, I could kind of learn things by ear, but my mother was never impressed by that. So you needed Annie Lennox's mom. Clearly, clearly I needed Ms. Artful Dar- Dodger, apparently. <laughs> Ms. Artful Dodger. <laughs> Mrs. Artful. She excelled at school and was very intelligent, getting into a prestigious grammar school at only four and a half years old. Damn. She was praised for her musical ability while simultaneously chastised for sucking at math and science. Um. Got it. I I feel that. Okay. I was about to, like, flip the table. <laughs> Some of us just don't like numbers, and that's fine. Yeah. Fucking hated math. Words are better anyway. Yeah. The criticism was compounded by Anne's awareness that her class set her apart from her peers. While most of her classmates at the Aberdeen High School for Girls, it was called a high school, but it was a grammar school, and that confused the fuck out of me. Yeah. Because they said she got into Aberdeen High School for Girls at four and a half, and I'm like, squeeze me, a baking powder, what? (laughs) Is this Doogie Howser? (laughs) Seriously. At the time, Aberdeen was a growing city in... On Scotland's west coast, but most jobs were lower income. Mm. In fact, Anne's father worked in a shipyard as a boiler maker, and they lived in a tenement house across the street from a slaughterhouse. Wow. Yeah, that sounds pretty low income. Yep. What, like 1950s Scotland? 50s, early 60s. Yeah. yeah. That's checks. All that. Yeah. Anne dealt with this by making friends with neighborhood kids who were of the same social status, as well as the teachers in her school. The music teachers were taken by Anne's piano abilities and her beautiful singing voice, which won her more than a few music festival prizes. I fucking bet. So the kids at this school are rich, little snobby jerks. Yeah. And then Annie was like, "Mm, I don't know about that. But the teachers were all poor like she was. And she's like, I like these teachers. They fucking get it. Yeah. They my people. That's cute, though. Eventually, she took up the flute, which she would focus on for most of her teen years. She started going to the Aberdeen Music Center on Saturday mornings, where she took choir lessons and military band rehearsal. Nice. Sounds kind of corny, but Anne absolutely loved it. Under the tutelage of the flamboyant and unfortunately named Bill Spittle, (laughs) she became an incredibly adept military flautist and also understood how a bit of flair was important for captivating a performance. You're damn right. There's nothing else marching band teaches you. It's it's that High shit. stepping bullshit. High what... stepping bullshit. Yeah. Hated it. <laughs> well, Anne fucking loved it. You don't want to know why? Because she carried a flute. Yeah. You know what's easy in marching band? Flute. Carrying the flute. You know what's more annoying? Carrying a saxophone. Yeah. Yeah. That That's an awkward strap that you have to carry. I've had less awkward straps. (laughs) As Anne became a teenager, she realized just how isolated she was. She didn't really know how to socialize with girls her own age. Her social status held her back from associating with classmates, and proximity also played a part. By now, she and her parents moved to a neighborhood called Maastricht, two and a half miles outside the city center. 
It was hard to hang out with kids after school when you lived so far away from them. Yep. But it's not like Anne wanted to hang with them anyway. She always marched to the beat of her own drum, not an outcast, but someone who would rather do her own thing. She turned to music and writing as an outlet for her loneliness, but she wouldn't stay isolated long. At 14, Anne started coming out of her shell. A thrift store wardrobe full of bell bottoms and fishnets and a growing interest in pop and rock music helped her make new friends. I want to be one of those friends. Yeah. She sounds so cool. (laughs) But it didn't win her parents over. Her, Her rebellion forced her father to become increasingly strict but Anne found ways around ways around it, like most teenagers she do. Really hated that she wore those bell bottoms. He was mad. <laughs> mad angry. about oh, I'm real angry about these bell bottoms, eh? Yeah, new single from Belinda Carlisle. <laughs> mad about bell bottoms. <laughs> but her rebellion never affected her studies. She knew she wanted to pursue music after graduation, so she auditioned for every music college in London. After the Royal College of Music passed on her in favor of a boy, telling her she'd be better suited as a teacher, you know, having a vagina and all. Look, that vagina's going to make it really hard for you to take music seriously. You should teach boys how to do music. All your crazy hormones, you just, you can't do the music. Can you explain to me how you bleed for five days, but you're (laughs) still alive after that? (laughs) Honestly, sometimes I can't. Yeah, it it's hard sometimes. It's hard out here for a vagina. But, but yeah. no, let's continue to just like, you know, make them feel shitty by yeah. telling them they should be teachers. Yeah. But cool. yeah. After all that shit, the Royal Academy of Music accepted her with enthusiasm. Well, they sound cooler anyway. At age 17, Anne set off to the big city of London. She thought she would hit the ground running as soon as she got there, but that wasn't the case. She hated it, calling it the biggest disappointment of her life. Mm. She was still a loner, never fitting into one social group or another, clinging onto her strong will and individuality like a security blanket. But worse, at the Royal Academy of Music, she was taught only classical standards like Bach and Handel, Mm -hmm. with strict lessons that very rarely allowed for self-expression. Yep. She longed to break away from the stifling confines of classical music, but she just didn't know which direction to go in. That sounds about right. I mean, I remember even in college, and I was in college 20 years ago, almost. I thought you were going to be like, and I was in college for like 10 years. (laughs) I I mean, sometimes (laughs) it felt that way. But yeah, like even at the turn of the century in the aughts, it's like, I still had a couple teachers who were older and like, well, I, I know you like this like singer-songwriter, but instead will you sing this aria? And I'm like, I don't like classical music that much. I don't dislike it, but it's not my jam. So I can yeah. only imagine you add, like, an extra 30 years before. Yeah. They're like, I'm sorry, you want to sing the Beatles? We've got, like, 20 reasons why you can't. Yeah. It's kind of like when we were in chorus in high school and yeah. we just wanted to sing, like, more contemporary songs, but our teacher was like, no, you need to sing this weird pseudo hymn that has thou and dost in it and we're oh like God. what is this and, and or then, also my favorite would be the you have to sing these african-american spirituals and everybody looks around we're all white yeah there was one year when she made us sing the theme song to golden girls which oh. at the time we were like why are we singing this old lady theme song but now looking back on it i'm like 
nah, this is the reason I know all the words to the Golden Girls theme song. <laughs> and that's all Annie Lennox wanted. She wanted to sing the Golden Girls theme that's song. That's it. Just let them sing the Golden Girls theme song. <laughs> Anne continued her studies at the Royal Academy of Music for three years, making it all the way through her curriculum and was poised to graduate in June 1975. Only three days before she was scheduled to take her final exams and graduate, she abruptly dropped out. Why? Every single time. Every time. Just fucking do it. And I don't know why I get so mad about it, but because clearly you're successful and you fucking pulled it off. But I feel like it's like, but why not just like do well, the last three days and say, okay, I've done it? Because it was not just three days. It was like the the final test that she had to go through to graduate. And she had so much anxiety over oh. it that it was like crippling. So, and she had spent the last three years being like, I'm dropping out. No, I'm not dropping out. No, I'm <laughs> dropping out. No, I'm not dropping out. So, Finally, like the culmination of everything she has learned in three years is about to be tested and she just flipped out and right. like left. She couldn't handle it. Also, standardized testing is stupid. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. She'd finally come to realize all she wanted to do was write songs and create her own music. And the Royal Academy didn't really mean anything to her. Yeah. She's like, fuck you. I'll do this myself. Exactly. Good for her. For a couple of years, Anne hopped around London, living in rundown bedsits and working menial jobs. When it came to her music, she had no direction, until one night she was listening to Stevie Wonder's album Talking Book, and she had a profound realization, soulful music is where it's at, and that's what she wanted to sing. She ain't wrong. Then she heard Joni Mitchell's Ladies of the Canyon, and that sparked her to begin writing songs, songs she realized that could move an entire room of people to tears. Wow. She's like 20 at this point. God. Yeah, not even. Probably around 2021. Damn. Anne jumped right into auditioning for music groups in 1976, landing gigs in a folk pop band called Dragon's Playground (laughs) and a communist leaning jazz rock band called Red Brass and even a girl duo that a shady manager dubbed the Stocking Tops. I don't know which one to talk about first. You've given me a lot here. There's too much material. Yeah. Red Brass? Yeah. Communist leaning jazz group? Like, she was cool with it because, like, she grew up in a communist family. And Dragon's Playground just sounds like a bunch of dudes dressed as, like, mages and, like... Yeah, all of your songs better have been about fucking Lord of the Rings and Middle yeah, Earth. absolutely. All of them. If they're not, I'm leaving this venue right now. I hope now. that's what she said. I thought. I hope that when she walked in, she was like, right, so these are all songs about Middle Earth, right? And they're like, yep. And she's like, cool, I'm in. Because if they said no, she'd be like, mm, not and about And then they would have been like, you're only in the band if you change your name to Arwen Undamiel. And you put on a pretty dress and these elf ears and, and play the like, flute. And she's like, you son of a bitch, I'm in. <laughs> she really Rick and Morty'd them, like, real hard. But, so then... And then the stocking tops. <laughs> Wait, that's not how stockings work. Yeah. Wait, or does it? I mean, like, what... So, like, he just wants the part of the stocking that, like, sucks your control top. Oh, the control tops. The control tops. Can we start a band called the, the control, control tops? Oh, TM, that's ours. Yeah. Don't steal that. It's ours. That's ours. These bands gave her some much needed experience playing in pubs around the country, but Anne grew increasingly annoyed at audiences more concerned with their drinks than who's on stage. 
Late that same year, Anne's luck would change. By now, she was living above her friend Paul's record shop and struggling through another thankless waitressing job at a restaurant called Pippin's. Oh, it's cute. It's cute. There's so many good Pippin references here. One day, Paul stopped in to visit Anne at work and brought with him his friend Dave Stewart, a musician looking for collaborators. Dave- and he's also a choice tipper. Oh, yeah. Tip Hopefully. your wait staff. Actually, they don't need that in your England, right? I'm, well, I mean, she wasn't really making a living wage. Yeah. So he should have. I hope he did. Yeah. Dave was the exact opposite of Anne. Born September 9th, 1952, Dave grew up in a pretty, as a pretty pampered kid. Mm. Far from the drab gray buildings of Aberdeen, Scotland, Dave's childhood was spent in Northeast England. His family was well off and his parents were hands off. (laughs) They let Dave and his older brother, John, pretty much do what they wanted and encouraged their imaginations. As a teenager, Dave taught himself to play guitar and dreamed of becoming a rock star. Of course. As all kids do. After a small taste of fame with his band Long Dancer, who was briefly signed to Elton John's record label, he descended into a world of hard drugs and destitution. However, abundant in adventure. Despite the fact that he never had any money, he toured Europe a few times over, lived in Germany for a while, and bussed on the street corners in Holland. So he hustled. Yeah. Boy, had that hustle. He even had a stint in a traveling show called Schoolgirl Slaves of Soho featuring the Sadista Sisters. I I don't know what to make of this. I feel like that's probably like slightly more scandalous than the stocking tops. Oh, (laughs) Than the leg stocking tops. Yeah, I'm pretty sure. Than the Hanes Your Way girls. The Playtex control top. He was at his lowest point when he found himself face to face with Anne at Pippin's. Oh. He didn't give a very good first impression. So he didn't tip her well. Um, I don't think he had any money to tip her with. But anyway. Dressed in a fur-collared coat and plastic glasses he got from a cereal box... He staggered into the restaurant with grocery bags and a very recently pierced ear that was bleeding onto his jacket. This is the most amazing picture you've ever painted for me. It's like the opposite of a meat cute. It's a meat. Oh, God. It's a meat. Oh, no. <laughs> no. Yeah. But Dave and Annie knew immediately that they had something special. I don't know why, but I... girl was attracted to this man. <gasps> Annie, you know you can do better, right? Yeah. His ear is bleeding. <laughs> His ear is bleeding. <laughs> At least pick somebody who's not currently bleeding. My ear is bleeding. <laughs> <laughs> she played him some of her original songs that first day they met, and he loved them. But the chemistry wasn't just musical. They went home together that night after a club outing and were inseparable for four years. Yeah, they were. Just dick and snatch. Yeah. Dave moved in with Anne above the record shop almost immediately. Yeah, I bet. Because he had nowhere nowhere else to live. (laughs) They set up a small recording studio in the basement, and after Anne quit her job, the two lived in relative squalor in order to work on music full-time. Nice. Slowly but surely, the straight-laced Anne helped Dave get clean, and the wild child Dave helped Anne let loose a little. The first step in doing that was changing her name from the old-fashioned and uptight Anne to the youthful and playful Annie. Gotta throw that I in there somewhere. Yeah. We were so close to giving you a really great name, but I, I just don't know what, what any, put an I in there. I, Anne? No. At the end. 
And I? No, no. Uh, before the E, Annie. <laughs> With their friend Pete Coombs, who spells his name P-E-E-T. Pete. Pete. Oh, I like saying, oh, if I was friends with him, I'd be like, hey, Pete. <laughs> Because you're asking for it. Yeah, you're asking for it. The group went about honing their craft through 1977 when they finally got a chance to record for real. Dave's friend Rob Gold was working for an independent record company in London, and after a blues artist canceled a three-week recording stint, Rob gave the trio some free recording time. Nice. They laid down nine songs in one day, most of them just Annie singing and playing piano solo. Oh. And Rob went about shopping the demo around and eventually Logo Records signed the group. He just happened to work for Logo. I just happened to work for Logo. Their original plan was to write songs for other groups to perform, but once Logo got a load of Annie and her captivating voice, they really wanted them to record a full album themselves. Yeah. So they agreed, and with a 300 pound advance each, they signed a six album deal. Right off the bat, there were problems. Oh, no. Though they were a group now named The Catch, Logo wanted all the focus to be on Annie. The trio argued, and eventually Logo relented. I mean, that's fair, because I feel like Annie's probably also even like, I don't want this to all be on me. Yeah. We're an entire group. Right. Especially because Pete was like the main songwriter. Oh, okay. The first release from The Catch dropped on October 14th, 1977, and it quickly took off in Holland and nowhere else. <laughs> You're like, yeah, Holland. Everybody uh, else? Everybody else? Crickets. Crickets. Logo wanted the group to tour Holland to support it, but the trio had come to an epiphany. The music scene in London was changing, and they were coming up on the losing end. Hmm. Punk was in full swing, and no one worth their shit really wanted to hear 20-something singing pop songs. Yeah. They wanted them, yeah. uh, they wanted them punk-ass bitches. They wanted people to vomit on them and tell them how much they fucking sucked. And wear all the safety pins. Safety pins everywhere. You know what? That's probably how Dave pierced his ears. So he just had to pierce his ears <laughs> again. Also, the way music was made was changing. Computers and synthesizers were making their way into their gigs, and Dave and Annie took particular interest in them. Freshly rebranded as the tourists, wearing dayglow outfits and Annie with a new bleached-out pixie haircut, oh. the band would play for unimpressed punk kids and suffer through heckling and occasional violence. <laughs> but they did their best at every show, and eventually they were playing sold-out shows at small venues. I feel like every artist in the 80s like, well, we went to England. That's where we really got tested. And it's like, I feel like you didn't have to go through that. I feel like yeah. maybe the youths in Britain didn't have to be douchebags. But why were they? Because Britain sucked back then? Yeah. Initially, Logo didn't want to release a tourist record. They didn't know how to promote it. When they finally released it in June 1979, the critics were harsh. But the album somehow performed pretty well probably aided by the B-52s who were opening for the tourists on their UK tour. Oh, hell yes. Yeah. Oh, that'd be a great fucking show. <laughs> their next album, Reality Effect, fared better, hitting number 23 on the UK album charts. And their cover of Dusty Springfield's I Only Want to Be With You hit number four. Mm. But that single would end up being their downfall. Uh oh. People accused them of selling out because they covered a 60s pop song. 
Um, what? Yeah. What? Because this was barely, what, this was like maybe 10, 15 years after the song came out. Okay. So imagine somebody now covering a song from like 10 years ago. So it would like, be weird. I, if somebody covered a Black Eyed Peas song, I yeah. guess. Yeah. Kinda. Kinda. And like, nobody wants to hear that. Like if Miley Cyrus did London, Fergie's London Bridge. That, I, like, I would I actually listen to that maybe. But like, a worse <laughs> song. Maybe. I don't know. Oh, yeah. Or like a lesser known song. Yeah. I don't know. I I just still think that's a dumb thing. Like It is. It's always a dumb thing to get mad at somebody about. It's always dumb. It's like people just want to get mad. And, you know, it's just sad. (laughs) Uh, And yeah, the media started focusing on Annie, even though she never claimed to be the front woman. The tourists always insisted it was Pete Coombs's band, so Annie getting all the attention wasn't cool even to her. It didn't help that the media, media continually twisted her words to make her look like an ice princess. Ugh. Fuck. Yeah. Making things worse for the band was Logo itself. Their relationship with the record company deteriorated to a point where the band wanted out of their contract. Yeah. After a fairly quick court battle by, like rock candy podcast standards (laughs) logo agreed to let the band go and they subsequently signed with rca records wowie wow wow yeah this all doesn't check what happened who what magical mystery man came up or like fairy made this dream oh rca is not a good guy in this story. no i'm not saying they are but the fact that they could get out of their contract oh yeah i have no idea probably because that was my big focus i'm pretty sure logo was having their own issues and were like about to go under so they were kind of just like okay jump ship go (laughs) we're just dump we're getting all the extra cargo out of here all right good i guess yeah yes The tourists released one more album under RCA before calling it quits. The tension between Annie and Dave and Pete becoming too much to bear. So it was Annie and Pete on one hand or Annie and Dave on one hand and Pete on the other. Good, good. So they're still Annie and Dave are still dating at this point. Yes. Okay. Pete always fancied himself to be the leader, shot caller and main songwriter in the band. And Annie and Dave grew tired of his holier than thou bullshit. They wanted to make their own music, which was going in a vastly different direction anyway. Yeah, that's usually like nine times out of ten the breakup is. Yeah, they're not getting along, but they also definitely have artistically different ideas of what they want to do. Yeah. And that's fine. So many ideas that it was like bursting out of them. And Mm. Pete was like not on their level. So (laughs) get on our level, Pete. There was a lot of change happening at this time for professionally and personally. For Annie and Dave, they unequivocally knew they wanted to continue working together, but in order to do that, they had to break up. Interesting. They needed to find themselves, while at the same time, they knew they couldn't make music with anyone but each other. Hmm. And this time around, it would be only the two of them. Which is honestly probably the smart way to do it. Yeah. You could do a duet. You guys got this. I believe in you. Yeah. But first, they needed to name their new musical venture. They wanted something that had to do with rhythm and strong beats, so Annie mentioned Eurythmics, which was a Greek style of teaching rhythm based on dancing. No shit! She had studied it in grammar school and lamented having to give it up in order to focus on the flute. Wow. Yeah. That's awesome. I did not know that was like a real word. I thought it was a made up word. Yeah. They... I thought it was like rhythm plus euro. <laughs> 
Eurythmics. I mean, yeah. And kinda. gymnastics. But um, they changed the spelling of it. There's actually two H's in it, and they took one of the H's out. Like, we don't need both of these you H's. You don't. It just fucks people up. Mm-hmm. Things were rough for the twosome as they embarked on this new musical venture. Though their relationship had ended, they still carried on like they were together, minus the sexual relations. Mm. Annie moved into the apartment above the one they had shared, but spent all of her time at Dave's. Except for when Dave brought women home, which was a lot, and Annie was forced to hear the headboard slam (gasps) against the wall all night. Oh, no. Annie. Annie, no. Annie, no. (laughs) Annie, you just gotta go find a fuckboy. Find a fuckboy. Are you okay? Annie, are you okay? (laughs) Annie and Dave did their best to keep their feelings in check to make Eurythmics work. And their songwriting was benefited a thousandfold for it. With the belief that guitars were passe and too associated with dreary 70s rock, Dave learned how to play keyboards practically overnight. This would be the basis of Eurythmic sound, keyboard synthesizers, and heavy dancey beats. Nice. With a bunch of songs in their back pockets, the duo went to Cologne, Germany to record with producer Connie Plank, who is pretty much the godfather of German electronic music, having produced numerous influential bands like Kraftwerk. Oh, no shit. Yeah, he was, like, instrumental in getting craft work, like, seen. Off the ground. Yeah. That's so cool. I did not know that. Yeah, like, Annie and Dave and Eurythmics were very heavily involved with and influenced by the German electropop mm. movement that craft work kind of started. Oh, yeah, you can 100% hear yeah. that. Because... I mean, I always thought they were British, so it's like, oh, like, you're like, oh, they're a British band, but it definitely had more of, like, a Europop. Mm-hmm. Not, yeah, I mean, Europop, I'll no, say Europop, right? Because it, it it felt more worldly than just, like, the basic, um, oh my god, what's the word I'm looking for? New, not New Age, what's wrong with me? New Wave? New Wave, wow, <laughs> that word left my brain hole. Yeah, like they were New Wave, but they had it, but they, were, there was, they were on another level. Yeah, it was like New Wave, but to kind of a degree that felt slightly otherworldly. Yes. New Wave, New Age. Yeah. New Age, World Wave. <laughs> All these things and more. New, new, new. Come see the Eurythmics. Sunday, Sunday, Sunday. <laughs> With all the things. <laughs> Hold your head up. And keep your head up. With the help of the Deutsche Amerikanische Freundschaft, an yep. electro-punk band from Dusseldorf, Blondie drummer Clem Burke, nice. and highly respected flautist Sir Timothy Weeter, the Eurythmics' debut album, In the Garden, was recorded. Awesome. Shit. How excited were you to just say a bunch of German words? So excited because I like didn't have to look up how to say them. <sighs> Jealous. <laughs> Yeah, Deutsche Amerikanische Freundschaft means German-American friendship. Oh, It's still yeah. sausage to me. <laughs> Aww. Released on October 16th, 1981, In the Garden was an opportunity for growth between Dave and Annie. In fact, the concept for the album was an allegory for their relationship. Huh. The garden was their relationship, and the flowers and fruit contained within it were decomposing. Hmm. It's beautiful yet melancholic. Oh, so this is more about their personal relationship. Yes. Yes. However, RCA didn't think it was so beautiful. They refused to promote In the Garden and didn't even bother releasing it in America, despite the first single, single, Never Gonna Cry Again, hitting number 
63 on the UK charts. Why are you going to even get a band? Why are you going to yeah. sign them on if you're not going to like do anything what about it? What kills me about RCA in this in this era mm-hmm. is like the only successful artist that they still had signed to them at the time was David Bowie. Mm-hmm. One of the most like gender bending and like weird alien like people that has ever existed and very experimental with his music sounds but yet they were like we don't know what to do with annie really kind of looks like a dude we're conservative derp derp and like (laughs) it's it just how can you promote david bowie and have him on your label and not know what to do with annie sexism Ding ding, <laughs> and even at this point, like David Bowie, I think had already left or was about to leave RCA because right. he was like, "You guys are fucking old pieces of shit, and you don't know how what to. You're doing. You don't know what you're doing." Uh. Like his like music was kind of floundering too, so he was like, "Why the fuck am I here?" Yeah, because I believe. Like late seventies was Young Americans, so like then... Thin White Duke era. After Thin White Duke, if I'm correct, or right before it, I'm. You know what? Got to study up. I got to bone up on my Bowie. <laughs> I thought Young Americans was like in the thick of Thin White Duke, but he I was. don't know. I you could know what? Be wrong. I just. You know here, what? Here this Rocky, isn't a David Bowie podcast right not. now. It's not. But also here here at Rock Candy Podcast, we learn so much that we push out other information yeah. that we learn. There's only so much room guys, in this noggin. Guys. And when we learn about David Bowie, we'll push out our Annie and you know what? knowledge. 75% of my brain is taken up by 1980s song lyrics. So there's only so much room for all of this information. <laughs> <laughs> anyway. Yes. So the duo hit the road by themselves in December 1981, a self-funded tour where Annie and Dave stuffed all of their equipment into a secondhand horse trailer. Wow. It was just the two of them, as their new stage show required zero roadies to set up. Good. They could control the lights and sound from the stage, ensuring they could play a show within an hour's notice and knock it out of the park. That's amazing. Good for them. Yeah. Like, fucking find yourself yourself that can do it all. Find yourself a yourself. Find yourself a self that can do it all. But this was all good because the UK was experiencing a worse than usual winter and driving was slow going. The weather also had an unexpected effect on Dave and Annie personally. Hmm. Dave suffered from various health problems since childhood and the harsh winter made it worse. In the middle of the tour, he ended up in the hospital with a collapsed lung. What? Later, after the tour was done, he would end up in the hospital again, this time to receive receive major surgery to permanently fix his continuously collapsing lungs. You're in your 20s. And how is your lung like, oops, fell apart again? Well, he had been in, I think, like five years before that or in the 10 years before that. He had been in no less than three major car accidents that all had, like, bad, like, health you know, problems. He got bad health problems after that. The fuck? But also, he was just, like, kind of a sickly child. And never <laughs> he really... He was a real Ringo star of a kid. <laughs> he really was. And just, like, never got over that. And, like, if, if a soft but chilly breeze just blew through his hair, he'd be like... 
<laughs> I got the black oh, lung, no. you know? So poor Dave. Yeah, that sucks. Sickly young fella. Aww. Meanwhile, Annie was dealing with her own mental health issues. The stress of her friendship with Dave was too much to handle, and her self-esteem was at an all-time low. And like, let's be honest, seasonal affective disorder is real. Quite real. And I would imagine quite prolonged in Scotland, at least. England, yeah. No, yeah. Not great. Yeah. She had a new relationship with photographer Peter Ashworth to revel in, but too afraid that it will ruin her dynamic with Dave, she opted to keep the relationship secret at that time. Ooh. Which doesn't make sense, because, like, he's flaunting his, you know conquests all over the place well why can't she but also i get it i was gonna say you capricorns you're very like you keep your we keep our feelings inside deep in that hollow pit of a soul that we have and then you're also just like well i ain't gonna give him the satisfaction yeah but then there's also probably like the 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 fear that i would assume most women feel more than men of like if I get a new boo, is this going to fuck our friendship up? So I better not say anything. Yeah. We don't say a lot of things for fear that it's going to fuck things up because dudes take things the wrong way all the time. It's almost like we get gaslit a lot or something. <sighs> no, no, no. That's a fake term. Anyway, RCA then decided to dump the band and that's when Annie fell into a deep depression. Why did they dump them? Uh, we'll, we'll get to it Ugh, in a second. Okay. She moved back in with her parents in Aberdeen and spent the better part of a year trying to get better. Aww. Feelings of absolute terror and worthlessness combined with bouts of agoraphobia caused her to hit rock bottom over and over again. <gasps> that's awful. Nothing seemed to help, even therapy, which I get because like, I'm not a therapy person <laughs> Like, I get it, Annie. I wouldn't want to. She had to claw herself out of this mental health crisis, and Annie's way of doing that was sheer willpower, homeopathic drugs, and keeping her feelings to herself. I feel all of this. I was like, Like, I'm sorry, we talking about Annie Lennox or or Ashley Ellis. I don't know who. It's me. (laughs) (laughs) This girl is me. Girl is me. In early 1982, shortly after Annie's 27th birthday, she got a phone call from Dave. He was very excited about this new musical direction he was going in, having thought up innovative ideas for the Eurythmics to try out while he was holed up in the hospital. With the support of her parents and Dave's boundless enthusiasm, Annie managed to make it down to London in much better spirits than when she left it. Good. Dave's big idea was to get a bank loan and open their own recording studio. Uh, yeah, I went all the way down there and saw the hospital. Like, great, what's a great idea? Yeah. We're going to open our own studio. I'm like, that really wasn't. Yeah. I really. He like. You know, I just came from Scotland, right? He was so proud of himself for like tricking the bank loan guy into giving him a loan. He like dressed up in this suit. He had like a fake briefcase. Oh my God. When, when you still had to like go into the bank and like look like a real good This is like man. every 90s like heist sitcom yeah. yep. that ever existed. Ooh, bow, bow. Chica, 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 chica. <laughs> that's, how he, that's, that's what he did right before he opened the door wow, to the bank. I chicka chicka too early. No. <laughs> Someone's like, excuse me, Sam, what are you saying? <laughs> Nothing. Nothing. Chicka chicka. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this way he and Annie w- could experiment to their heart's content and produce their own albums. Fair enough. 
They found a space in the Chalk Farm neighborhood of North London, which I've never... What is a chalk farm? How else are you going to harvest the chalk for the teachers, Ashley? I don't, I don't You need know. to grow the chalks from little babies. <laughs> and as they grow and mature, they just Pluck peel them. off. You just, you just peel Pluck. off a couple pieces of chalk and you send it out to the needy teachers of the world. <laughs> chalk farm. Chalk farm. <laughs> Doing great things for teachers. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. It was a small attic space above a noisy timber factory. Oof. Because that sounds like a great place to have a recording studio. I mean, it was going down and they were yelling timber. (laughs) You're welcome. They stuffed it with inexpensive equipment and got to work recording a new album, at least when the timber factory wasn't screeching away. Fair enough. But they were still in the market for a new record deal. Instead of shopping themselves around to other labels, they joined up with a junior A&R rep at RCA named Jack Steven. Oh, that's nice. So, like... There were people at our RCA that believed in them. Yeah. And Good. it was Jack Steven. Thanks, Jack Steven. He knew what's up. He called that Henry Rollins what's up hotline. He's like, I, hold on, I must call my friend <laughs> Mr. Rollins. He usually knows, oh, what's up? <laughs> no, your rhythmics are great. Keep them. Gotta sign them. Get them a label. <laughs> label record. It'll be great. When RCA initially dropped your rhythmics, Jack was the only one at the label that contested that decision. He continued to rally for the group, eventually convincing the conservative label to re-sign this weird-ass band, mainly because Dave and Annie still owed the label money from their tourist days and they wanted to recoup their losses. Okay. Over the next year and a half, Eurythmics locked themselves in their new studio and experimented with their sound. Leaning heavily on synthesizers, heavy beats, and Annie's contralto vocals, they recorded and released a small handful of singles in that time. They all failed to chart but became popular staples in their live sets. Good. Then they released a song called Love is a Stranger. Mm. It didn't chart well at all, but it created plenty of buzz. In an attempt to hop on the new MTV train, Eurythmics made a video for the single. In it, Annie plays two roles, an ultra-feminine high-end sex worker and a male-presenting character that is obsessed with her. Oh. The sex worker is in an outfit with a blonde curly wig and lots of makeup. She rips off her wig to present Annie's short, slicked back hair. Later, Annie dons a tailored men's suit and sunglasses in a gender-bending switcheroo that was far more progressive than most audiences could handle in 1982. I'm in love with this. I will show it to you. It's amazing. I believe it. MTV played the video approximately once, and they didn't even play the whole thing. As soon as Annie pulled off the wig and her gender came into question, the producers cut the tape. Peril, like, do you not watch the videos before you put them on air, MTV? I don't... This was young MTV. I really don't think they did. Hey, MTV. Fuck you. Yeah, pretty much. MTV then pulled a real dick move and asked RCA to send them... Annie's birth certificate so they could verify her gender. So, yeah, fuck you, MTV. I'm so mad. (laughs) I have no words. For what it's worth, RCA did not send them her birth certificate. I, oh, cool. Thanks, RCA. Thanks for doing bare minimum (laughs) good things. The bare minimum award this week goes to (laughs) RCA. Hooray. You still suck. Oh, God. Well, oh. I just want to slap MTV (laughs) as a collective unit. Yeah. Right now. Yep. 
The Love is a Stranger video caused quite a hubbub, so the duo capitalized on it. Good. Annie did numerous interviews with witless and tactless press asking her if she was male or female, or if she was bisexual, or if she (gasps) wanted people to treat her like a dude. And her usual response was to be a bit cheeky and embrace comparisons to men. Yes. Because that's all you can do. That's all you can do. And honestly, best way to handle that, be like, well, how would you treat a man? Treat me the same way? Yeah. You fucking pieces of garbage. But this was just the beginning. The Eurythmics' second album, Sweet Dreams Are Made of This, was released on January 4th, 1983, and immediately got rave reviews. The press and audiences love the quirky electropop group and the Mm -hmm. incredibly telepathic synchronicity between Annie and Dave. By the end of 1983, the album was certified platinum, aided generously by a music video that caused major uproar across the pond. The first single, also called Sweet Dreams Are Made of This. Which is like, I mean, come on. Everyone knows the song. But I always want to say Sweet Dreams Are Made of These. Oh, I always just, that's what she said. Well, now I'm just all about sweet dreams are made of cheese. Yeah. Who am I to disagree? <laughs> oh my God, get out. Get out. Never. <laughs> I forgot the rest of the words. But yeah, the song reached number two on the UK charts in March 1983, blocked from the number one spot by Bonnie Tyler's Total Eclipse of the Heart. I can't even get that mad. I can't, I can't even get that I mad. Can't, I can't get mad. That's a great... Oh, God. That's such a good song. Yeah. It was then released in the U.S. that May and slowly climbed to, again, number two by August. Once every breath you take by the police fucked off, Eurythmics <laughs> gladly took the number one spot. Thank you. Because Thank if you. there's out of the two of those songs... Oh, it's Eurythmics. Every time. All the way. Yeah. All the way. All the way. Because it's not about stalking someone. That... Yeah. yeah. Have you ever noticed how problematic the police songs are? Like, don't stand so close to yeah, me yeah, and yeah, I'll yeah. be watching Maybe you. Maybe we can talk about those someday. Oh, God. This ain't the episode. No. But but let's just plant that in your heads. Yeah. Please. Honestly. Police have an interesting and kind of fucked up story. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe someday you can do that story because I'm too angry to do it. That's fair enough. I kind of just like watching you get mad sometimes. Like literally like a cartoon whistle just blowing my top. <laughs> as soon as anybody mentions the police. Sting. <laughs> Both kinds of police. <laughs> Fucking whistle. <laughs> Americans were simultaneously enamored and angered by Annie's presence. For the love of animals, great and small. <laughs> MTV has the Sweet Dreams music video on heavy rotation, and it was America's first introduction to the androgynous front woman. Mm. The extra short, bright orange haircut, tailored suits, and leather outfits caused people to question her sexuality and gender, much (gasps) like the UK press did when Love is a Stranger was released. (gasps) Wait, what if she's not a woman? (gasps) What if she's not straight? Yeah. I can't make a decision about her just by looking at her, and that makes me uncomfortable. Then there was... A Hail w- Mary, full of grace. <laughs> there was a long time when, like, the press would question her about, like, did she get a sex change? And it's like, how could you even get away with asking fucking questions like that? Oh, because nobody fucking gave a shit about mm-hmm. people in the LGBTQIA mm-hmm. uh, spectrum? Mm-hmm. Oh, that's right. Gotcha. Mm. 
Hmm. The difference here is that America's perception of these things were and still are so narrow minded that it was difficult to reconcile someone like Annie Lennox. She had to be put in a box so that she could be completely embraced or wholly rejected. Rad. Rad, rad, rad. When asked to explain herself, which she shouldn't have to, Mm -mm. sometimes she said she just wanted to get away from ultra-femininity. Sometimes she was taking a stand against toxic masculinity. Sometimes she was purposely trying to intimidate men with the image of a strong woman. Either way, she was constantly forced to explain and defend her image choices. Even still, androgyny was a well that Annie continuously dipped into. She may have hated answering for it, but playing different characters satisfied the actress in her. It's fun. Yeah. Like... She can do whatever the fuck she wants. Also, it doesn't matter. Exactly. The fact that she is capable of such amazing... Range. Exactly. Is... Something that should be applauded and celebrated. Instead of being like, but are you a boy or a girl? They should be like, it's amazing that you are able to just like capture each gender. And eventually throughout the Eurythmics and throughout her solo career, she doesn't really like she I don't think she ever does any movies or TV shows or anything, but she definitely acts in her music videos and she fucking loves it. Oh, she's amazing at doing it. And she is fantastic at it. Like. Her acting in Walking on Broken Glass. Oh, my God. Just her facial expressions are, you know exactly what is going on in the brain when you look at the face. The fact that nowhere in her education you mentioned theater blows my mind because she is just a natural talent. Yes, absolutely. She's fabulous and she shouldn't have to answer for any of this bullshit. And honestly, playing yourself up in androgyny is one of the funnest things you can do and it's amazing to be able to have right. the ability to like do your makeup or wear a certain outfit or do things in a way that make you be like wait and not only huh. that but like there were definitely a few times when she even dressed up like elvis oh and like did an God. elvis kind of act and it's That's like adorable. looking at that you should realize oh this is all just acting it's not that she wants to be a man. It's not that she had a sex change. It's just that it's fucking fun to dress up like Elvis and, like, do the lip thing and, like, shake your hips. It's fun. Um, no, it's not. Men- women should not want to be men. Men should not want to be women. I did not give my consent to look at this. <laughs> so, you need to stop. You, Miss Annie Lennox. I hate everything. <laughs> Meanwhile, Dave was more than happy to fade into the background and let Annie represent the bands. <laughs> Dave's like, no, this is fine. No, Keep this doing is, it. This is fine. It's fine. That's not to say he didn't also cultivate a careful image. His hair in the 80s was a continuously evolving work of art that he liked to hide behind. Mm. Still, he was more than happy to be the mad scientist making fat ass beats behind his gorgeous <laughs> front woman. <laughs> and more fat ass beats were on the horizon. After successfully taking America by storm, the band immediately went back into the studio to record their follow-up album, Touch. Whereas Sweet Dreams took a year and a half to write and record, Touch only took three weeks. That doesn't mean the music suffered at all. In fact, it went to number one in the UK and broke the top ten in the US. Because they got the touch! Touch! Thank you. 
<laughs> the album spawned one of the band's biggest hits, Here Comes the Rain Again, oh. which was written during one of the biggest fights Ann and Dave ever had. <gasps> no shit. The argument turned physical when the two fought over a Casio keyboard, like literally wrestled each other to the ground trying to get it away from each other. I would, you, you know, you could be like, oh, that sounds dangerous. But then when you say Casio keyboard. Yeah. All seriousness has left this conversation. Flies right out the window. Oh, my God. But Dave won the argument, and Annie sulked off to a window. When she saw the overcast sky outside, she said, Here comes the rain again, falling all around like a memory. Which set the two off on a songwriting frenzy. Oh, I love it. Oh, my God, I love it. Because you know what? I think that's my favorite Eurythmic song. Because, like, Sweet Dreams is good, but man... Yeah. Here comes the rain again. I don't know. I really like Missionary Man. Oh, Missionary Man. Oh. No. Here comes the rain again. I'm standing by it. Yeah. It's just the synth. It's just a little synth <laughs> keyboard right there. It's a little synth. It's the itty bitty ting. It's the itty bitty synth. The success of Touch made the Eurythmics bona fide rock stars, and they found themselves touring the world for the first time. But on the eve of the tour's kickoff show, Annie's voice was in shambles. No. The tour continued as planned, but eventually she couldn't even do interviews. It was determined she had nodules in her throat <gasps> that needed to be it. removed. A surgery date was set for December 1983 when she heard of this new... Tr- Oop, nope. A surgery date was set for December 1983, but then she heard of this new treatment developed by a Swiss surgeon where electric vibration pads were set on your throat for hmm. several days and they just like vibrated your throat, I guess. Okay. And the nodules were supposed to go away. All right. In this last, last ditch effort to avoid surgery, Annie met with the doctor and tried out this newfangled treatment. Honestly, not a bad idea. It you, worked. You don't want the invasive surgery. Yeah, it it worked. That's awesome. She avoided surgery and the tour went on and this set up a completely new way of living. Anytime she would experience throat problems, she would immediately stop talking. She would communicate only in sign language and notes on scraps of paper and have Dave do all the interviews. Wow. That's wow. Yeah. And that's someone who takes their craft a fucking seriously. And during this time was when they performed at the Grammys and mm-hmm. she was like kind of dressed up like Elvis and like the audience was just like what the fuck is going on <laughs> but they performed Sweet Dreams and you could tell her voice was like shot she Aww. was like pushing it out hard like a turd <laughs> like a hard turd she's like I've been constipated for days but mostly my voice I is need broken that sweet relief Interestingly, as the Touch Tour progressed to Europe in February 1984, Annie and Dave decided to fire their backing band, some of whom had been working with the duo for the last two albums. Oh, fuck. They'd been secretly auditioning new musicians and didn't inform anyone of their being let go until the last minute. That's not cool, guys. Like some people, Why would you do that? Some people were like, no, we get it. That's fine. But others were like, that's fucked up. But like... They were so dedicated to the band being just the two of them and having it be fresh every time. They did like a Chuck Schuldiner here. They like 
fired everyone and rehired new people to work on a new album. Which is fine. Every time. I just feel like I think you should at least give them the common decency of just saying, hey. Heads up. You know, this is what we're doing. This is why yeah. we're doing it. It's not you. It is us. Yeah. You know, want to give you a heads up so you can just look for heads new Heads up, work. seven up. Heads up, yeah. seven up if you need to look for new work. Because here's the thing, too. You're it firing session. You're firing <laughs> session musicians who need that paycheck to survive, but like that's all they have, right? And that and they're banking on this. They're not for getting the next royalties year. from you. Yeah, they're only getting like you know tour. Yeah, they're getting paychecks. Time. They're living paycheck to paycheck. And if they're expecting to be out on the road for a year and then they get let go six months in, they're fucked for six months. Right. So, yeah. Common courtesy. Common courtesy, guys. One of the few people to keep his job was Barry Maguire, Annie's stylist. (laughs) He was a young gay man feeling his own oats at the time, and Annie had become aware of the AIDS epidemic and took it upon herself to educate Barry about it. Oh. He was quite young. He Mm. might have been even underage still at this point. No shit. So, like, he was touring the world, and he didn't really go out a lot, but she was worried about if he did go out. She mama-bared him a little. Yeah. Which is nice. The two became very close, and Annie, like a mother figure to this guy who grew up without parents. This wouldn't be the last time she'd become an important person to someone in the gay community. Mm-hmm. While she was growing closer to some people in her circle, she was pulling away from others. Her relationship with Peter Ashworth was always up and down, but it Mm -hmm. had reached new depths while Annie was touring the world. It wasn't exactly clear who broke up with who, but Annie went on with the tour as if she were a single lady. Yeah, I mean, like, get it. Did Dave finally know at this point? (laughs) Yes, he had known for a while. Good. It, It was fine, but like... Their relationship was just fucking weird. That's fair. But she wouldn't be alone for long. She met German Hare Krishna devotee Robert Ludwig Ronfeld, a.k.a. Radha Raman. Okay. In February 1984. And yeah, he... that's a good month. That's a really good <laughs> yeah. month for good things to happen. Hey. Hey. Because that's when you were born. Yeah. <laughs> Our birth months are like all over this story. Yeah, it's You're welcome, Annie. It's great. It's us. But this this guy, he proceeded to woo her with a series of vegetarian meals he would leave outside her hotel room door. I mean, honestly, that's pretty rad. Yeah. Like, apparently she really liked them, but everyone else was like, they look disgusting. Oh, yeah. Like, vegetarian (laughs) meals in the 80s. I just had to think about that. If some random dude, like some Hare Krishna monk guy was just like, I love you. Here's vegetarian food. And just, like, left it outside my hotel room door with, like, no explanation. I'm not going to eat it. That's... I don't know. I might. I feel like if there's anybody, I'm, I would let do that to it's me. It's a Hare Krishna monk? Yes. <laughs> That's it. Oh, That's, okay. It's a short list. Sure. <laughs> short list. Hare Krishna makes it. <laughs> That's it. Nobody else. Yeah. So he followed her around Germany, bringing his entourage of Hare Krishnas with him, and they would party as hard as Hare Krishnas could every night. Well, so they would take hallucinogens and play the sitar. I guess. Yeah. Yeah. And eat lentils. Yeah. Oh, I fucking love lentils. Lentils are disgusting, Maggie. They're delicious. They are disgusting. Mm -mm. (laughs) Oh, my God. Anyway. I was born in the wrong time. (laughs) 
Because of his religious affiliation, the couple were required to keep it in their pants until they were married. Oh. And so, barely a month later, on March 14th, 1984, 29-year-old Annie married the 30-year-old religious guru. I'm going to say... Not a good reason to get married. Never a good reason to get married. Like, which if you're is why married so you can fuck, don't get married Which to is them. why abstinence is dumb. Abstinence. It leads to mistakes. Abstinence makes the heart grow dumber. Yes. <laughs> At the time, she didn't even know his real name. Oh, God. And there were plenty of things about Radha Raman that Annie would eventually find out. God damn it. February 1984 was a bad month. Well, no, that was a good month because they met. It was a bad month a month later when they married. Uh, okay, yeah. so March 1984. Sorry, guys. Yeah, sorry. Bad month. But anyway, we're going to eventually find out about Ram- Radha Raman. God damn it. Later. But I want to know now. Well, you're not going to. That's bullshit. Sorry. I'm leaving. I don't even <laughs> be a part of this bullshit anymore. It's all bullshit. It's all bullshit. But yeah. That's we're gonna leave it there for now, and we'll pick we'll pick up everything else next oh my episode. God. There's a lot of everything else. There's a lot, but uh, there was also a lot this time around. So there's a lot. Turns yeah. out there's a lot to Annie Lennox's life. A whole fucking lot. So yeah, my gourd. Well, thanks everybody so much for listening. Yeah, we hope you guys enjoyed this tale as much as I fucking did. I learned so much today. I think that- we all did because, like, there's so much about Annie Lennox that, like, we as Americans don't know. Right. Maybe across the pond they know more because they're more familiar. Of course. But um, but also we as millennials, I think, don't know enough about Annie Lennox because we kind of grew up with the Eurythmics and Annie. But at the same time, I think she was slightly before our time. Yeah. And we're geriatric. So, like- and we Americans did not embrace electro pop or european european <laughs> pop wow as much as obviously europeans did so yeah we just don't have taste it's true come for me yeah well all right well hope you guys enjoyed this we're gonna come back probably in two weeks with the next part of that again sorry summer hour, summer hours kind of suck but at the same time i'm not sorry i have like maybe two more hours of free time a week so yeah it's kind of nice yeah <laughs> yeah it's, it's a little nice to you know chill out for a fucking <laughs> for two second hours. for two extra hours a week yeah right yeah it also gives me more time to collect my notes for the next time anyway so it's exactly good. it's good but yeah so hope you guys enjoyed that if you're picking up what we're putting down, you can visit our website, rockcandypodcast.com. And over there, you'll find more episodes as well as links to our social medias, the Instagram, Twitters, and Facebooks, whatever social media. I don't, you know what? I just don't care anymore. When we're on it. <laughs> we're here. You we might what? not be on it. I don't you, really fucking care you, anymore. You know what? When you guys reach out to us, we reach back. And that's all that matters. You cup our balls, we'll cup your balls. Yeah. Not actually, but like... Metaphorically. Metaphorically. Metaphorical ball cupping here at Rock Candy Podcast. And I appreciate anybody who's been tossing us reviews lately. And if you feel like throwing us a five-star review on iTunes... Please do. We appreciate it. Love you. Love you. (laughs) (laughs) But also, we have a Patreon if you want to give stuff to that. You guys already know that, but I'm going to tell you about it anyway. (laughs) Oh. Um, That's 
patreon.com slash rock candy podcast you throw us some of your hard-earned cash we will toss you some stuff yeah. in the form of bonus episodes and some swag and mm-hmm. maybe extra bonus episodes yeah which um we have an extra special special one coming up very soon yes so hopefully i can get that edited soon if you want to know what that is give us a few bucks and you'll get to see it like literally just throw us like toss us three bucks and you'll get it literally three dollars and you'll get it so yeah if you feel like it but if you don't and you can't afford it and times are tough because we totally get that too just keep hanging out and enjoying our stories we fucking appreciate that too yeah yeah if you have questions you can also send those to us over the social medias or an email and contact us at rockcandypodcast.com oh my god we have an email we do sometimes no we always do we just never use it anyway (laughs) right so that'll do it for this episode and until next time for more annie lennox Mm -hmm. party on ashley party on maggie Ooh, and party on you crazy kids out there Here comes the rain again. <laughs> boop, boop. <laughs> boop, 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 boop. You should, boop, boop. You should cover that. But also, I feel like that's not the right song. Yeah, it is. <laughs> We're going to go fucking listen right. to it. God damn.